Amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to the Gospel of John in the 17th chapter, John chapter 17, and we will consider this morning verses 20 through 26 of John 17. Uh, We're in a regular exposition of sermons on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of John. We have been the last two weeks in this particular chapter, John 17, which is often referred to by Christians as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And we come now to the third and final section of this prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Let me ask that you follow along as I read these verses. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that what we have not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us. Do this for the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. It'd be very hard to determine which of uh, the verses, which of the petitions of the Lord Jesus are most precious to Christian people. If we went around the room today and each shared the words from Christ that mean most to us or are most wonderful, most magnificent to us, we might get a variety of answers. Uh, John 17, in this prayer of the Lord Jesus to his Father as he approaches his final hours and as he approaches going to the cross, it's just so full of material that should be of encouragement to us, of comfort to us, and of consolation. And there are things that the Lord Jesus prays for in John 17 that should be inspiring to us and should animate us as we go about our day-to-day lives. The verses we've read this morning in verses 20 through 26 have to be among the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. Uh, But sadly, uh, some of the verses in this passage have been at the center of a great deal of controversy over the centuries of the church. Uh, Many debates and discussions have taken place surrounding the whole question of unity among God's people and particularly how we should understand the subject of Christian unity from Jesus' prayer here to His Father that His people would be one, even be perfectly one. 
Uh, You may know, if you know Christian history, there have been a number of debates between, for example, the Roman Catholic Church and and churches that are referred to as Protestant churches. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church would argue for a form of unity that is institutional, a form of unity that is had by membership within the Roman Catholic Church. Protestants, of course, disagree with that, and they broke off from the Catholic Church. And then also within Protestant circles, uh, there are intramural debates and discussions about uh, how we should understand Jesus' prayer here, and what sense are we as God's people throughout the world to be one and to be united. And even within Protestant circles, there are lots of opinions and debates and discussions over how to understand these words from the Lord Jesus. Well, as we come to these verses that have been at the center of debates and discussions surrounding the question of Christian unity, I'd like to preach these verses, but, but we'll do so in a way that will seem, that will feel, I think, somewhat topical. Uh, so this sermon will be a little different from our normal expositions in John's gospel. I hope to preach the verses, the words, the text itself, but there's a particular subject, a particular topic I want to address, and at times we may go a little bit beyond John 17 in addressing that topic. This morning I'd like to talk to you about the priority of unity among Christ's people based on these words in the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. I'll say that again. This is the subject of today's sermon. I'd like to talk about the priority of unity among Christ's people based on these words in the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Like I said, it may feel at points like we're going far afield from the text itself, but, but really my goal this morning is to help us to appreciate, to understand what is it that Jesus is praying for? What does He want for His people throughout the world in terms of their oneness? Of what character and quality is this unity that Christian people are to possess? And I'm going to encourage us, exhort us, that this subject of unity among Christ's people, it ought to be a subject that we think more about. It ought to be a subject that we're more passionate about. There are few things that are closer to the heart of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, than that His people be one, that His people in some sense be united, that they stand together in the gospel, that they stand together in Christ that as the Father and the Son are one, that we too as God's people are to share a unity together. And it's a unity that we're not only to share in our respective local churches, I mean, that is a matter of immense importance. Few, few issues in the New Testament, at least when we're speaking about the church, rise to that level of importance, the unity we must have as God's people in this local assembly. But I'm talking about a unity that transcends any particular local congregation but a oneness and a unity that all God's people in every place, regardless of denomination, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, there's a certain unity, a certain oneness that we ought to possess by virtue of being the Lord's people. And it's that subject that I want us to talk about this morning. As as we consider these verses, it would be very appropriate for you to think, now how do I work this out in my local church? I mean, that's, that's right. How can I be one? How can I better reflect the oneness and the unity that we ought to share in this local body? But then I want us to go beyond that also and to think how we ought to reflect and how we ought to work out the oneness that we ought to maintain with all of God's people in every place. So here's the outline we're going to uh, utilize this morning 
in order to better understand what it is that Jesus is praying for when he prays that his people would be one. First, we want to consider very simply uh, what this unity is not, so negatively, and what this unity is. What it is not and what it is as we seek to understand the unity and the oneness that Christ prays for. So first of all, what this unity is not. Let's consider it negatively, and um, I'm going to list four things here, okay? Four things that this unity is not. Number one, it is not essentially, like, like in its essence, it is not essentially institutional or organizational unity. It is not essentially institutional or organizational unity. Nothing in Jesus' prayer merits this understanding of Christian unity. The unity is, of course, actual. It's a real unity we're meant to possess with God's people, but it's not realized through top-down institutional enforcement, and it's not realized by organizational membership, like signing the dotted line or attending a particular church or something like that. It's realized by common confession of the apostolic gospel and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this prayer about popes or councils. There's nothing in here about synods. There's nothing in here about institutions or organizations. But there's a great deal in here about believing the truth and about union with God in Christ and about faith in the apostolic message. That is the message the apostles preached. That is the gospel itself. Those who would argue that the only way to realize uh, the answer to this prayer of the Lord Jesus is through institutional unity are mistaken. Uh, moreover, no such institutional unity exists among Christians today. There is no one true organization, institution, or denomination that commands the title of the one true and united church, not in Rome, not in Canterbury, not in Constantinople, not in Nashville, Tennessee, at the offices of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the idea of hierarchical, organizational, institutional unity is an illusion and is not the essence of Jesus' prayer here. Now, there is, understand the distinction here, we believe in one true, holy, universal, apostolic church. But, but that church transcends any of these particular institutions I've mentioned. The one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't have a physical address in Rome or in Nashville, but rather it constitutes all of God's people in every place. All right, now the second thing that this unity is not, it's not institutional or organizational unity, Number two, it is not a unity of all who would claim the name Christian. It is not a unity of all who would claim the name Christian. One very sad, but I don't think should be surprising reality uh, that we just need to look in the face is that millions across the world who would use the word Christian to describe themselves are in no meaningful way Christians. So, so you know that, right? Uh, that there are so many people that call their way of life Christian that in no meaningful sense is actually Christian, at least not as the Bible defines it. That the term Christian has become, in, in our day and age, so elastic. It's undergone such linguistic revision. It's come to embrace such a broad spectrum of beliefs and perspectives uh, that we can no longer reliably understand what it means when someone says, simply, they are a Christian. 
You've got to ask some follow-up questions. What do you believe that means? How do you understand that term? When the first man believes that Christianity is one of many ways to God, and the second man believes that Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead, and the third man believes the Bible is full of errors, and the fourth man believes that he is permitted to have sexual relationships with whomever he would like, and the fifth man believes he can have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, and all five men say that they are Christians, at some point we have to admit the word has lost its meaning. 100 years ago, this was the point that J. Gresham Machen made in his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism. J. Gresham Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and he left Princeton Seminary in the 1920s and established Westminster Seminary. Uh, We have uh, a couple of graduates and current students at Westminster. Machen became the founder of, of that institution, and he wrote a little book called Christianity and Liberalism, and in it he argued that, quote, Modern liberalism, that is liberal Christianity, modern liberalism is diametrically opposed to Christianity, and that it is fundamentally dishonest for liberalism to claim the name Christianity if that term is to have any meaning at all. He argued that true historical biblical Christianity and modern liberalism are not two branches off the same tree or or two descendants from the same family, but rather two different religions which are diametrically opposed to one another, and only one appropriately can assign the title Christian to itself. It is the true historic orthodox biblical Christian faith that is appropriately called Christian, and so-called liberal Christianity is not Christian at all. The famous 20th century Christian thinker H. Richard Niebuhr distilled liberal Christianity into one sentence. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Listen, that is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. Uh, uh, People who embrace those particular perspectives about God and about man and about the cross, we share no unity with them. They're not in the family. We say unapologetically, we have no fellowship with such people. But I'm not just thinking about so-called liberal Christianity. I'm thinking about a form of Christianity perhaps we encounter even on a week-to-week basis. I'm thinking about sort of casual cultural Christianity so prevalent here in the south of the United States in which the Bible is treated with relative indifference, the lordship of Christ is ignored, and sin is casually indulged. Such people who profess Christianity are not people with whom we share the sort of oneness and unity that Christ is talking about here. The sort of unity we're meant to share with other Christians does not encompass all those pagans who who would impudently take to themselves the name of Christian. Such people are part of the world and not of the Christian community. I appreciate what D.A. Carson says on this point. He says, quote, John 17 does not look to a unity made up of both believers and members of the world. Anyone who is not a true believer constitutes part of that world which stands in antithetical relationship to the unity of the church. And whoever cites John 17 to justify a unity that embraces believer and apostate, disciple and renegade, regenerate and unregenerate, abuses this passage. Such ecumenism, that's a fancy word for a program of unity, such unity has its roots not in Scripture, 
but in misguided notions of what New Testament Christianity is all about. So that's the second thing that this unity is not. It's not essentially institutional or organizational unity. It's not a unity of all who might claim the name Christian. Then number three, it's not a unity based on total agreement about every point of doctrine. It's not a unity based on total agreement about every point of doctrine. It is not taught here in Jesus' prayer, nor is it taught anywhere in the Bible that true unity in Christ can only be possessed by those who share a comprehensive agreement on every point of doctrine. Search the Scriptures and you will never find that argument made. In fact, you will find in a number of places that true unity, true biblical unity, requires some level of toleration and forbearance of differences of perspective, differences of preference, differences of practice, differences of conscience, and in some cases, even differences of doctrine. Moreover, the Bible does not give us warrant to isolate and separate from and adopt a sectarian attitude toward people who believe the gospel, embrace the Bible, believe in the Trinity, love the Lord Jesus, submit to His Lordship, and work for the spread of His kingdom, though they may disagree with us on some matters of secondary or tertiary importance. There is a name for such people who agree with us in the essentials but disagree with us on secondary and tertiary issues, and that name is brother or sister. And they're part of us. They're one with us in a very real way. So so I can stand as a Reformed and Baptist pastor in the 21st century in the southeastern United States, I can stand united with the Presbyterian Kevin DeYoung, though I think infant baptism is a serious error. I can stand united with the Anglican J.I. Packer, though I think Anglican polity is dangerous. I can stand united with the evangelist Billy Graham, though I have some serious concerns about the prudence of altar calls. I can stand united with the Methodist John Wesley, though he believed you could lose your salvation and that God was something less than totally sovereign in salvation. Now listen, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of secondary issues. If you know me at all, if you know the eldership of this church, if you know this congregation at all, we do not diminish issues of secondary importance. We've gone on record about them, and we insist that all those who would join our particular local church embrace those matters of secondary importance. But what I'm simply saying is, it's possible, indeed it is the revealed will of the Lord Jesus, that we possess unity with people who might disagree with us on secondary issues, but are one with us in the essentials and fundamentals of the gospel and of the Christian faith. True, real, actual, biblical, Christ-honoring unity does not require that we agree with brothers and sisters in every point of doctrine. And this prayer from the Lord Jesus does not make that argument, does not require universal agreement in order to maintain real unity. Now, the fourth and final negative statement I'll make in terms of what uh, Christian unity, according to this passage, is not. It is not merely a unity that exists only in heaven. It's not merely a unity that exists only in heaven. Let me explain what I mean by that. Some people will try to argue uh, that John 17.20 and following advocates for what they call a positional unity. So yes, of course, all those who believe the gospel and are united to Christ throughout the ages, whatever denomination or group they may find themselves in, are positionally one in Christ. 
like in, in heavenly realms, we're one together. And in heaven, we'll all be one and finally realize that unity. But they would say that doesn't necessarily have implications for how we work out our unity here on earth. Yes, praise God, we're one with those brothers and sisters over there, and one day that unity, gloriously, wonderfully, will be realized and perfected in heaven, but for right now, we're not going to share any meaningful fellowship together. doesn't necessarily change the way we actually carry on our practice, the way we treat one another in the here and now. I'm going to argue that that perspective won't work based on Jesus' wording in this prayer. Jesus expects that our unity would be demonstrable, that it would be observable. And therefore, the real unity we possess with all true Christians is meant to affect our actions and our behaviors here and now toward our brothers and sisters. So that's all negative, what this unity is not. Now let's consider positively, what is the character of this unity that Jesus prays for to his Father? What can we say positively? And there's three things I would like to note. Number one, it is a unity of all true believers based on common confession. It is a unity of all true believers based on common confession. Please look again at the text, John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only. Who's that? That's, that's the 11 who are there, who he's been praying for. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who's that? Well, it's not just the first generation of Christians, but it's the worldwide Christian network, all who have heard the gospel and received it and believed it. I'm praying for those who will believe through the Great Commission, those who will believe through the spread and preaching of the gospel. And he prays, verse 21, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. The sort of unity that Jesus is advocating for should certainly be possessed by a particular local congregation, but it is to encompass all of God's people, that they may all be one. It is a unity of Christians who believe the apostolic message, that is the message that the apostles preached, a message that is essentially the message of this gospel account, the gospel of John, that Jesus is the Christ the longed-for Messiah, uh, that He is the Son of God, that He is the God-man, and that He was sent from the Father, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by faith, by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. It's a unity of common confession and faith and belief in that gospel message. And this unity is not the product of doctrinal reductionism. That is to say, it's not trying to hollow out the truth as much as possible and reduce it to the lowest number of facts that one has to affirm to be considered in the camp. This core, this unity, is a robust unity. It holds that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He is the Christ and the Lord of all, that He is the Son of God, that He actually died on the cross for the forgiveness of sinners in order that they might escape the wrath of God and an eternity in hell forever, that He actually did rise from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. This unity is unity in the gospel and in the fundamentals of the faith. 
This unity embraces the great commission and the priority of spreading the gospel. This unity encompasses devotion to God and a commitment to obey His commands. Again, I think Don Carson is helpful here. He says this, this unity that Jesus prays for is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. It's not hunting enthusiastically. What's the, the, the lowest number of statements you have to affirm in order to sign your name on the dotted line? That's not how we should view this prayer from the Lord Jesus. It's not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God Himself for life and fruitfulness. It is a universally necessarily present among genuine believers, and it is a unity that must be brought to perfection. In another place, Carson says this, regardless of denominational affiliation, there ought to be among Christ's people a sincere kinship, a mutual love, a common commitment, a deep desire to learn from one another, and to come, if at all possible, to a shared understanding of the truth on any point. This is a unity, a unity of common confession in the apostolic gospel that we share with all true believers who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is how Paul identifies the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, he's writing to a particular local church like ours, but he says this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. He says, I'm writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Like, you know, brothers and sisters at Corinth, that you're not the end-all, be-all of the Christian church, right? You know you're not just the bee's knees or something, but, but that rather there's this great global work that I'm doing through my son and his gospel, and you're standing in the faith with them, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, both their Lord and ours. You stand with all the saints together with them. And so Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. The unity Jesus prays for, the unity that is envisaged here is the common confession of faith in the gospel and obedience to Christ's word by men and women across the globe who, though perhaps unlike each other in every other conceivable way, share this unity in common, that they all have Christ Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, and they all believe His gospel and follow His word. The Anglican Mike Reeves wrote a book called The Unquenchable Flame, Recovering the Heart of the Reformation. We almost always keep that book stocked in our bookstall. I assume it's back there now. Uh, and, and, and the book is about the Reformation and, and, and all of that. Um, and in that book, Mark Dever, now a, a Baptist pastor in Washington, D.C., writes the foreword of that book. If you don't have money to buy the book today, you could just go over there. You have my permission. Read the foreword. It's like two or three pages. And in that foreword, Mark Dever is advocating for the type of unity Protestants should should advocate for, should believe in, should treasure, should work for. And in that forward, Dever writes this, quote, 
There are countless millions who have read the word and understood and believed the gospel. The biblical gospel brought by Jesus Christ, taught to Paul, and taught by countless teachers since then, is still taught around this world by men and women who have no organized link with any earthly bishop in Rome or elsewhere. An Assembly of God missionary in the Philippines, an Anglican minister in Sydney or Tanzania, a Baptist pastor in Brazil, a Lutheran minister in St. Louis, a Presbyterian minister in Scotland, a Korean missionary in Stockholm, and an interdenominational pastor in Dubai may have never met. They may never be part of the same earthly organization, but they are now and will remain united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are all working for the growth of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, of the church throughout the world, and they are all preaching the gospel. That is precisely the type of unity Jesus is praying for here. And it's a unity that has endured, and it's a unity that is spread, and it's a unity that has grown. It's a unity that is based on common confession of the apostolic gospel. Second, positive statement. What is this unity? It's a unity of all true believers. Number two, it is a unity grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. It's a unity grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. This is part of the reason why I say our unity is not institutional or organizational, but rather organic and spiritual. It's a unity we have supernaturally based on the unity between the Father and the Son and our unity with them. Look at the words of Jesus, again, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is an organic and relational unity. It's a unity that exists between the Father and the Son, and it's the product of mutual love and commitment and harmony. And the point is that the oneness that exists between the Father and the Son, and the oneness of the Father, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10, verse 31. The oneness that exists between the Father and the Son becomes a basis for our oneness with one another. Track with the logic here. The Father and the Son are one, and if we belong to the Father, as Christ says we do, and if we belong to the Son, we too are one not only with them, but with one another as those who have been united to Christ and with the Father. We enter into the unity of the Godhead, and it's a spiritual unity that we possess through our connection to Christ. If we are truly His, then we are truly God's, and if we belong to God, then we truly belong to one another also. Jesus wants His disciples to appreciate the unity they possess by virtue of their connection with Him. And just as the unity of the Father and the Son is not to be broken, so the unity of God's people should not be broken, but rather should be brought to perfection. You see, the unity that we possess with God and Christ, and that we thereby possess with one another, is a unity that's purchased by Christ and that is supernaturally established, which is one of the reasons why the unity endures throughout the generations. 
and why people who are so unlike each other, so vastly unlike each other, whose experiences are so vastly different, actually can possess, do possess, a real unity with one another. You can see that illustrated in noose in this particular local church. There is a oneness we all possess with one another, though we come from all sorts of different backgrounds, different contexts, different experiences. What is it that binds us? Well, in a wonderfully profound and even mystical way, it is based upon this unity that we have with God in Christ Jesus. Just as the Father and the Son are one and we are one with them, we therefore become one with one another. It is a unity that is divinely established and is divinely maintained through abiding in Jesus and in the Father. It's a unity grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. Now consider with me thirdly and finally, positively, what this unity is. It's a unity of all true believers based on common confession. It's a unity grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son, thirdly and finally. It is a unity that is meant to be observable and attractive. It is a unity that is meant to be observable and attractive. Let's look at the verses one more time. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now I've argued that the unity we possess with other Christians, even outside this local church, is not in essence institutional or organizational. Like we don't all go to some address and have our membership with that particular institution and organization. But does that mean that this unity is not observable, not demonstrable, not visible? Listen again to Carson here. Although the unity envisaged in this chapter is not institutional, the purpose clause at the end of verse 21 which is, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the purpose clause shows beyond possibility of doubt that the unity is meant to be observable. Listen, the unity that we possess with other Christians is meant to be of such a quality that as Jesus says, the world, that is those outside of Christ, the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me. In other words, that the world may believe the gospel, that God has sent His Son. The language is even stronger in verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, I can see that the unity that these people possess is of a supernatural quality, and, and, and I can see in this unity that this is the overflow of something they've experienced by God Himself. And listen, it's not just that they can tell that we're Christians. You remember when we considered the end of John 13? There we have that great commandment, this new commandment that Jesus gives to them, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Why? That the world may know that you are my disciples. They see the way we love each other. You all must be Christians. You can see that by the way you love each other. This goes a step further. It's not just that people will tell, wow, you're so united, you're so one, you must all be Christians. It's actually that they can actually discern that the gospel is true. It's It's not just that we're all part of the same confederation or something. But our unity, our oneness, becomes an apologetic, an argument for the truth of the gospel so that the world may know that you, Father, sent me, that they may believe that you have sent me and that they might see the love that you have had for them. They're going to be persuaded of this by virtue of seeing and appreciating the unity and oneness that exists among God's people. Carson says such unity ought to be so transparent and compelling that others are attracted to it. To such biblical unity, there is no proper objection. Indeed, it is mandated by the final prayer of Jesus Himself. That leads to two implications, okay? Two implications. Number one, our unity cannot be theoretical. Our unity cannot be only theoretical. It must be practical and demonstrable. In some way, we have to exhibit unity to exhibit it, to put it on display, not just in our local churches, but with Christians broadly, globally, in every place. That seems to be the plain meaning of the text. Second implication, it means that we should understand our unity to be part of our evangelistic witness. We're to understand our unity to be part of our evangelistic witness. The way Christians behave toward one another testifies to the veracity of the gospel and of the Christian faith. Let me say that again. The way Christians behave toward one another is to testify to the veracity of the gospel and of the Christian faith. At least it's meant to. Isn't that the meaning of Jesus' words here? That they may be one so that the world may know that the incarnation is true that you, Father, have sent me, that John 3.16 is a fact. How did they come to that conclusion? According to Jesus' prayer, it's through seeing this exhibition of this profound and supernatural love and unity that the people of God possess with one another. It's a unity that is meant to be observable, but not just observable, it's attractive. It's magnetic. It draws people to it. So what does Jesus pray for? John 17, verses 20 and following. What is the character of this unity and oneness Jesus wants his people to possess? Number one, it is a unity of all true believers based on common confession. Number two, it is a unity grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. And number three, it is a unity that is meant to be observable and attractive. Now in the last few minutes, I want to give some implications of this petition of the Lord Jesus for us. What does this mean for each one of us as individual Christians, and what does it mean for us as a local church? Let me start with that second one. What does this prayer of the Lord Jesus, what implications might it have for us as a local church? And how should we, how do we apply uh, the words of this prayer? Five things briefly. Number one, 
we will pray for other Bible-believing churches, even those churches that are not totally aligned with us theologically and methodologically. Listen, we pray for a lot of churches here. We seek every Sunday in the pastoral prayer to pray for at least two other churches in the triad. And then we pray for missionaries. We pray for a lot of churches here. I don't know, the list we have right now is like at 30-something churches. Just to be candid with you, I am not enthused about everything each one of those churches believes, says, and does. And that really should not surprise anyone who's a member here. But if they are Christ's, and if they stand with us in the gospel, and if they believe the Bible, and by the help of God's Spirit are seeking to follow God's Word, we're going to pray for them because we're one with them. We must be one with them, and they will have our prayers. And we'll not only pray for them, we'll also promote the work of other Bible-believing churches insofar as their work is honoring to Christ. Number two, we will partner with other churches who, like us, are holding fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We will partner with other churches who, like us, are holding fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We will not carry on our work in isolation, but will pursue partnerships globally, nationally, and locally with other faithful churches. And we will not limit our partnerships only to churches in our unique confessional stream or our own denominational tradition. We will partner with Christians of other denominations who, like us, believe the apostolic gospel and who, like us, call upon the name of the Lord. And we will also partner with parachurch ministries and organizations to better realize our unity with the wider body of Christ. Where we find groups that promote the gospel and sound doctrine, though they may encompass people that we disagree with on secondary or tertiary issues, though they may sometimes post blogs that we're not entirely enthusiastic about or platform a particular speaker that's not our favorite, where we find people who stand with us in the gospel, though they might disagree with us on secondary or tertiary issues, we're going to be open to partnership. We're going to be open to standing with them. And so we praise God for groups like Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition, the Southern Baptist Convention, and Nine Marks Ministries, and Desiring God, and Ligonier, and the Pillar Network, and RUF, and Campus Outreach, and Young Life. The list can go on and on. We bless God for the work that these Christians are doing, and we recognize we stand with them in the gospel of Jesus Christ insofar as they remain faithful to the gospel. Number three, we will, God helping us, resist an isolationist, sectarian, and separationist spirit. We will, God helping us, resist an isolationist, sectarian, and separationist spirit. Spirit that is always critical and never constructive, always negative and never positive, always suspicious and never charitable. The great Reformed and evangelical preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this, can we deny the charge that we as evangelical Christians have been less interested in the question of church unity than anyone else? We are always negative. We're always on the defensive. We're always bringing up objections and difficulties. I do not think that we can deny this charge. Listen, friends, isolationism, sectarianism, a separationist spirit, that's poisonous. 
That destroys churches, and it dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ, and few things can be further from His heart. And we need a heavy dose of texts like this. This petition of the Lord Jesus, if we're going to avoid such a spirit, one that is so dishonoring to the Lord. Rather, we want to be those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One mark of a healthy Christian, there's lots of marks, but, but, but if you could think of a, a, a pastor or a spiritual mentor in some sense as a doctor, as he's checking on the health of, of a patient or something like that, one sign of health is that that Christian hates division in Christ's church and loves unity. I just encourage you to do this. Read the New Testament and just mark every time the writers of the New Testament say something about the importance and priority of unity and oneness and harmony and love among God's people. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. And it's a matter of immense importance. Number four, we will read creeds. That's it. We'll read creeds which emphasize the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We will read creeds to make clear what it is we believe in keeping with what every Christian has believed for 2,000 years, because we know wherever the content of these creeds is sincerely believed, we have brothers and sisters, and we stand with them in the truth. Now, we're going to talk about more than what's in the creeds. Those of you who are in the Exploring Emmanuel class, the new members class this afternoon, you're going to learn we have confessional documents that go beyond the creeds. But where we have a man or a woman who sincerely embrace and believe the creeds of the early church like us, we have brothers and sisters. Number five, and somewhat on the same point, though we will maintain and even contend for our doctrinal distinctives we will maintain and even contend for, argue for, our doctrinal distinctives such as believer's baptism, a reformed understanding of salvation, and our particular view of church polity. Though we will maintain and even contend for our doctrinal distinctives, we will seek to emphasize and give priority to the importance of more fundamental Christian teachings such as the gospel, the atonement, the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, and the authority of the Bible. Please hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying, okay? We are going to contend for our doctrinal distinctives because we think they're important, because we think they're honoring to God, because we think they contribute to the health of the church and the health of Christian people. What I'm saying is we know how to make a distinction between primary and secondary issues fundamental and essential issues that make a person a Christian and a child of God, and matters of secondary and tertiary importance upon which Christians can disagree, they'll still be in the camp, still be in the family. And we as elders are going to endeavor to do that, to, to acknowledge those distinctions. We stand with other Christians of other denominations who disagree with us on matters of secondary and tertiary importance. They're not unimportant issues. We've denominated. It's not in our name, but it's all over our website. We're a Baptist church. We're a Reformed Baptist church in the tradition of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. But that is not the most important thing about us. 
The most important thing about us is that we have come by God's grace to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, have been saved from our sins, have been forgiven by the grace of God. We are one of his true churches and we stand with every true church throughout the ages and throughout the world today who like us call upon the name of the Lord, both their Lord and ours. If they're for him, we're for them. But what does this mean for all of us as individual Christians? What does it mean for us as individual Christians? I don't have five points. Don't worry, I'm coming to a close here. Very simply, very simply. I mean, how, how should you apply this to yourself? How am I seeking to apply this to myself? Well, we should all be eager to work for, to pray for, to fight for the unity of God's people in every place. We should work for, pray for, fight for the unity of God's people in every place. We start with this local church. I have to be one, have to be united, have to be in harmony with my brothers and sisters in this church. When Jesus is hours away from dying a bloody death on the cross, what is on his heart? That I would be one with the Christians sitting in front of me and behind me and to the left of me and to the right of me. But then we have to go beyond that. The Christians in every place who believe the gospel, Christians in other countries, part of other denominations, other groups, we must be passionate about the unity of God's people. I hope as, as you're out and about in Winston-Salem or Kernersville or Clemens or Greensboro, High Point, wherever you are, I hope that you're eager to promote unity with other Christians that you come in contact with. Moms and dads at schools and at the co-ops, when you meet people from Two Cities Church or Trinity Church or Hope Presbyterian Church or Calvary Church, say to them, we pray for you. My pastor this past Sunday prayed for you. We've been asking God to bless your church. We're so thankful that we stand with you in the gospel and we are for you. Just wanted you to know that. Do you interact with Christians at work? Whatever context, somehow try to establish this. We're not competitors with one another. And we're not just suspicious of you. Rather, we love you and we're one with you. Individual Christians here, we should just have a, a higher sense of the priority of unity among God's people and we should play our part in seeking to exhibit that unity so that it might be observable and attractive to people who look on. I've said this already, this is huge in the New Testament. Few subjects rise to this level of importance when the New Testament writers talk about the church. We must be more engaged in promoting unity among God's people. Now someone could say, Alex, this sermon doesn't sound very reformed of you very Protestant of you. We're Protestants, right? We broke off from the Catholic Church in the 16th century. We protest. That's our thing, right? Pointing out error, dividing from those who are in error. John Owen said this, I confess I would rather, much rather, spend all my time and days in making up and healing the breaches and schisms that are amongst Christians than one hour justifying our divisions. When men have labored as much in the improvement of the principle of forbearance 
as they have done to subdue other men to their opinions, religion will have another appearance in the world. If you mix, miss that, he's saying if men and women would spend more time working on tolerance and forbearance with their brothers and sisters that they think are to some degree in error, they worked more on that virtue, which is pleasant to the Lord Jesus, and less time on seeking to subdue and press people into their opinions, well then, Christianity will have a new appearance in the world, a new face in the world. Maybe it won't appear so ugly and factious, but attractive and bright and supernatural. John Calvin said this in a letter to Thomas Cranmer, amongst the great evils of our century must be counted the fact that the churches are so divided from one another that there is scarcely any fellowship between us. He went on to say, in order to achieve the greater unity of the body of Christ, so far as I have it in my power, if I am thought to be of any service, I shall not be afraid to cross ten seas for this purpose, if that should be necessary. Charles Spurgeon preached on John 17, verses 20 and 21, about 150 years ago or so, in 1866. I need to give you a little context to explain this quote before I read it. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist. Baptists were what are known as nonconformists or dissenters. You had in England, as you do today, you have a state church, the Church of England, that claims this line of connection, this apostolic authority from the apostles. It's the, the one true church in some senses. You had the state church, the Church of England. But then, see, you have all these groups that broke off from the state church, like Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Methodists and Quakers, etc who are not part of the state church, and they're referred to in Spurgeon's day and today as nonconformists. They didn't conform to the state church, or sometimes referred to as dissenters. They dissented. And so Spurgeon was a dissenter, a nonconformist. He did not stand with the Church of England, though he recognized there were many Christians within the Church of England. And he sometimes refers to the Church of England as uh, high churchism, because his criticism of the Anglican church was that they were so high church, they had such an emphasis on liturgy and on the sacraments and on set prayers and set sermons, and sometimes you'd go to an Anglican church and it hardly looked distinguishable from a Roman Catholic church, and that just drove Spurgeon crazy. There's a little poem about Spurgeon. Um, uh, there once was a preacher called Spurgey, who greatly detested liturgy, but his sermons are fine and I use them as mine and so do the rest of the clergy. Spurgeon was not enthused about high churchism, about the ritualism he had perceived in the Anglican church. Now, to understand this quote, he's going to refer to high churchism and an Anglican man named George Herbert, who was one of the greatest Christian poets of all time. Spurgeon said this, where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. 
And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself. Unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. That is the posture of a Christian who appreciates and is committed to this prayer of the Lord Jesus, that they may all be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. Well, may God help us as his people to bring this sort of love and unity to perfection according to the Lord's prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are painfully aware that our efforts in the area of love and our efforts in seeking to preserve the unity of the Spirit are so small and so feeble. And so we acknowledge that to you and we pray to you and we ask that you would forgive us and that you would compensate for all of our failures. We thank you that there is grace for us There's a spirit who empowers us and all of God's people in every place that we can really work by your help toward achieving those things that are dear to your heart. You have revealed to us that the oneness and unity of your people is a pleasant and lovely thing in your eyes, that it brings honor to you when your people stand united. Help us in these things. Help us in whatever ways we can individually and as a church, to to really pursue the ideals that are held forth to us in this prayer of our Lord. We pray that you would help your church in every place. We pray that Christianity would have a new appearance in the world. We pray that you would come, as the song says, and bid our sad divisions away, that our sad divisions would cease. We pray that you would help us to be lovers of the gospel, of the truth as it is in Jesus, to be ourselves faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and to exhibit unity with all those who are faithful to the gospel, and to the truth as it is in Jesus. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.